years since the inception of our province, the fishery has been an enormous part of the British Columbia economy, not as significant a contributor these days as it was 100 years ago, but you take the fishery away from B.C. and it's a dramatically different place. And of course, right now, it's halibut season. On the other coast of North America, it's lobster season in May. And so how are these major providers of wonderful seafood products surviving with the COVID-19 impact uh, on all economies and all sectors of the economy, especially, of course, the food industry. A lot of fishers and fisher uh, fisher companies are providing their products directly to restaurants. And, of course, that demand is not completely dried up, but it might as well have been compared to what it's usually like. So the author of a new report, one of the authors of a new report on the uh, seafood economy, talks about something called community supported fisheries. One of the authors is Philip Loring, who is associate professor and Arkell chair in food policy and society at the University of Guelph. Joining us from Southern Ontario this morning, Professor Loring. Philip, good morning, sir. Good morning, sir. It's, it's good to have you with us. And I said Arkell chair. And of course, I was thinking of that Hamilton band. And it's the Arel chair of food policy and society at University of Guelph. Nice to have you with us this morning. It is indeed halibut season here on the West Coast. Mm-hmm. We look forward to it with great relish every year. Uh, and uh, I, in fact, had some just a couple of nights ago. So what's happening to all of that beautiful product that isn't destined for restaurants? this year, Philip. What are they doing? Well, there's certainly still a lot of fish out there that uh, people are catching, and the fishers, the fishermen and women that can, are finding new ways to get fish to consumers, and a lot of that involves the model that you mentioned, community-supported fisheries, where people are trying, if they're able, to retool their business to, instead of delivering to restaurants, to deliver it to your door or to a pickup location or to some other fresh market. All right. Now, community-supported fishery, it sounds like uh, the revival of an old idea because there are times, spot prawn season, for example, here in Vancouver, Philip, every year, people go down to the docks and you buy your, your prawns right off the from the guys in the boats, right, tied up at the wharf. And, and, and you can do that at other times with salmon and so on. So is this an extension of that to make it a regular thing where uh, you can go to the, the fish market or to the wharf uh, every Saturday or whatever? and just buy your stuff straight from the people who pull it out of the water? To some extent, yes. What we're seeing is a lot more people trying to do that sort of direct marketing to consumers. But a lot of this, the community-supported fisheries component works a little different in that you have fishers or cooperatives of fishers, as is the case with some of the larger operations, who sell shares to their customers at the beginning of the season. Okay. And so the, the fishers get the financial security of knowing they have customers who have essentially already paid. And then they fish and they provide what they fish. And so the consumers are sort of eating with the ecosystem, if you'll accept, take that turn of phrase, um, accepting that they can't always be sure what exactly they're going to get, but that they're going to get good, fresh seafood. 
Indeed. So about cost, let's just if we zoom in on that for a second, because at the front of the season, you're you're asking subscribers or members of this co-op to uh, to pony up some dough and give literally uh, thereby providing cash flow to the people who are going to go out on the water and bring all this stuff back to the docks. What happens, though, when the world price and I'm thinking of the lobster fishery right now underway in Maine and one of your co-authors is from the University of Maine. So world right. world prices in both Maine and Nova Scotia right now, Philip, are down. So how does that affect the prices that were charged to the members of this co-op in the first place? Well, the way that it works is it sort of short circuits these sort of global price markets for seafood. And what it instead does is it says, you're going to pay the fishers what they need to fish ethically, to to pay a good wage to their deckhands and so forth. And Mm -hmm. you know, you're going to get good seafood. And so it's a little less sort of linked to the global market prices, I mean, you still fa- you, you pay a fair price, you, um, probably a little bit of a premium because of the quality you're getting and the relationship you're having and what you're supporting and doing so. Uh, but, you know, there's not right now not a, I would say, a big enough sort of, well, there's definitely enough consumers to, to go this route, but it's taking a lot for some fishermen and women to retool to do this. Uh, and some of those fishers who fish and sell every year just to processors who sure. sell fish to food service don't have this kind of option. So some folks who are already set up are really gearing up. Uh, some folks are trying to just sort of dabble in this new approach so they don't have an entire lost season or a lost income whatsoever. And some folks are just completely sitting it out right now wondering what they're going to do. Exactly. So this is uh, this is perhaps then about the local catch network. I was hoping I could persuade you to tell us more about. This is quite recent. It, it's mm-hmm. small-scale fisher people across Canada and the U.S. Uh, trying again to pivot on the fly to readjust to what uh, the new normal right and local catch was founded back in 2011 i believe but it's it's been this sort of steadily growing network because more and more fishers are finding there's over 400 uh, operators that are part of the network across north america and they are finding that this is a viable way to do business and the network right now it's been really interesting to see how it's given fishermen and women a platform to share what they're doing what's working what's not share ideas solve problems together and so that sort of role for that what we would call a community of practice has been really sort of inspiring to see people fishers helping fishers figure out how to navigate this and look forward to maybe if there's some new normal where consumers get used to a more direct connection with their fishermen. And it's not a bad and thing to get used to at all, is it? No, not at all. It's healthy food. It's a it's a better way. You know, you can you can know that the pers- people who are harvesting your seafood are doing it in a way that that matches with your sort of ecological and ethical values about food and sustainability. So, uh, again, uh, this is uh, something whose, uh, if you're talking about the local cat network, which, uh, as you say, was founded uh, is eight or nine years ago, perhaps it's an idea uh, from uh, a decade ago whose time has finally arrived because it seems to be uh, more and more. And, and it's not just the, the fishing community either. There are the agricultural and the food supply chain is uh, reconsidering practices right across the board these days, aren't they, Philip? Yeah, that's right. You know, we we have a pretty robust food system or a set of food systems in in Canada and in North America, but there certainly have been fractures that have been revealed by in the supply chain uh, by the spikes in demand, by right. the challenges to labor and whatnot. And and I do think that what you're seeing is the most resilient folks are the ones who are already sort of had their foot in the door of this alternative approach of closer supply chains being closer to your consumer 
And can you see that uh, down the road, if this trend continues, Philip Loring, that governments will not be in the way? Uh, One of the reasons that we don't go down to the docks and buy fish off the boats anymore is because health bureaucrats got in the way and said, well, you know, we haven't inspected every single fish that's coming off the boat. And, you know, that uh, and they get they have their way and things get uh, diminished. Uh, Could you see governments perhaps in the future not uh, looking the other way? That's not what you want, but being more cooperative right policies around food safety you know are important but they are geared more towards a more industrial warehouse-based processing facility approach to doing things and as a result a lot of fishers can't do anything but sell you a whole fish you have to get special permits to do anything you know to fillet fish and whatnot and Mm -hmm. that does really limit what fishers can do i think that if the demand for this sticks around and continues to grow we will see policy change yeah Okay, and uh, this, uh, again, necessity being the mother of invention, and uh, this is a a most needy time for us all, and as you say, pivoting on the fly, uh, no matter what sector of the economy, and especially if you're involved in the the food chain, is really critical for everyone down the line, too, isn't it? I I I think so, and (laughs) that has to be the most used word of 2020 is pivot. Well, but, but I think everybody's getting creative. Yeah. I was just going to say we're getting we're we're are, we're getting pretty good at pivoting, aren't we? <laughs> yeah, well, you know, it goes to show how creative people can be, and and it's not just you know it is about keeping um, food on your table and keeping your livelihood, and and you know, but the people who work in these fisheries, they this is what they do, this is their way of life. They are creative and adaptable by nature. And so, you know, it's not been a surprise to me to see how resilient and innovative all this has been in such a short amount of time to ensure that people still get healthy food. Yeah, we're, we're keenly aware of their contribution to the economy here in British Columbia. Philip Loring, thanks very much for this. Good to talk to you this morning. We may do this again. In fact, I'd very much like to as we continue to pivot in several directions. <laughs> we're not always going to make a perfect pivot, but uh, it's uh, fascinating as, as we, we try to do this all together. And I'd very much like the opportunity to get more of your observations going forward. Some children and their parents are not adjusting all that well to the new era of isolation and could likely benefit from a pep talk or perhaps a perspective check. So this morning, we thought we would check in with a pro. At four years old, Mia was diagnosed with cystic fibrosis, which is a chronic lung disease that affects the pancreas and has forced her to live in and out of hospital for the past nine years. Taking serious precautions to avoid viral infection is pretty standard stuff for Mia's daily routine. She has lived social distancing long before it has become a thing and Mia has also been homeschooled since the age of six. She is indeed a pro when it comes to today's reality. Mia Cadenzi and her mom Melissa are on the line from Toronto. Good morning you two. Good morning. morning. Mia tell us a little bit about uh, when you first started homeschooling. Did you start did you ever go to school or has homeschooling been a thing for you right from the beginning? I did go to school for two years, and I started homeschooling at six. Okay, and what was the big difference? Uh, You were quite young at the time, but still a smart kid. What was the big difference that you noticed uh, with homeschooling and and the change-up, the no routine of going out every day? Not being with my friends. Yeah. 
And uh, Melissa, how about from a parental uh, point of view? You've been dealing this from, for a lot of years. A lot of moms and dads getting up and listening to us right now have been dealing with it for, oh, maybe uh, four or five weeks, and they're not handling it all that well. You're, you're a veteran now, uh, by comparison. What's the biggest adjustment? I think the biggest adjustment is trying to find something that works for you. Um, I remember when we started out, it was really difficult. I'm not a teacher at all. I'm nowhere near close to being a teacher. Sure, yeah. So we had to find, um, you know, some classwork and the curriculum. We had to do it at our own pace. We had to do it the way I could do it. Um, so I kind of had to teach myself before I had to teach her, which sure. was a little difficult. But we found we found something that works for us. And I think that's something that every parent should do is just find a routine, find what works for you. It's not going to be the same as everyone else, but um, find something that is fun for you and your child to do together. So it keeps them engaged. It keeps them wanting to do it. I know these are challenging times. I know the kids want to be at school. They want to be with their friends and it's just so hard to concentrate at home. And, but I think if you, engage with them and you try to find a a fun way to do it they're going to like it i think you'll slowly adjust yeah melissa one of the things that uh, we've had by way of tips from educators who themselves are uh, scrambling a little bit to keep up with all of this stuff although they're a little a little a little in a little better position to do it uh, one of the things that they they continue to say is don't try to replicate the classroom in your house your house is not a classroom you will have moments where you're devoted to education and school issues but trying to convert your house into a classroom could end up well rather poorly would you agree i think that's i do agree i actually tried that i tried converting my house into a school or a school-like setting back when she was six years old and it didn't work right it doesn't work it's not um it's just it was not what i had expected it to be so we kind of i mean we still devoted a, a corner that would be her schoolwork corner and we still devoted a spot that was away from the TV, away from cell phones and iPads, and some, somewhere where she can concentrate. But we try to keep our home life and our school life separate so that it doesn't, it doesn't become one big thing. So, um, you know, you have to separate being a mom and being a teacher and mm-hmm. not blend those lines at all. So it's, it's a little challenging, but I think slowly parents will get used to it it is a huge adjustment though i know mia you said uh, the biggest adjustment for you uh, not going to school and, and adjusting to homeschooling was not ha- hanging out with your friends uh, now obviously you found ways around that over the years you've been doing this for a while um so uh, as you yeah. watch watch more and more young people uh, get uh, facetime and and uh, zoom and skype and whatsapp and hangouts and all of those other apps is that what you've been doing for the last few years Yes, and I do have a couple of friends living on my street, so that I see every day. But obviously now I FaceTime them. And so have you yeah. been, uh, obviously you've been in, in a situation where you have to protect your, your, yourself, you're your a vulnerable person. Uh, so uh, you've, you've had to v- uh, virtually connect with your friends for quite some time, right? Yeah. How was that? kind of hard but i want to see them but we'll we'll have to wait 
Yeah, well, I mean, and I suppose uh, that's probably the toughest part. The younger you are, the the, the longer the wait seems. What are your friends telling you about? Uh, well, you know, we'll get through this together. Uh, we'll, we'll 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 reconnect. What are they saying to you? Well, we play games together. Um, um, FaceTime. Do a lot of things on FaceTime. Just check yeah, it. they spend a lot of time. Sorry, they spend a lot of time together online um, playing games, sure. and sometimes they'll do artwork and stuff together. They'll do their separate activities, but together. So it is a little different than being together and being outdoors, but they're slowly adjusting to it. And they're on FaceTime, I think, from morning until night. Well, so yeah. They're still well, together. The only difference, Melissa, is that you were a kid, there wasn't FaceTime. You were just on the phone all the time, right? Yeah, it was more difficult for my parents to make phone calls. <laughs> I think so, yeah. It was a lot different. Well, uh, we appreciate it. But t- also, um, we have been working with Starlight. So Starlight Canada is an organization that um, provides games and activities for, for families of children that are dealing with life-threatening diseases. So they've been sending home um, play-at-home packs for the kids to do together on, on FaceTime Live. So they've been really incredible. Um, these play-at-home packs have crafts uh, to do together, and so they all, we're like one big family. We all get online together. We all do these crafts on live every Saturday. And they've been really incredible. I just wanted to put it out there that if there's anybody that would like to donate to this organization to send packs home to these children in need, the um, it's called playfromhome.org, okay. and Mia actually has a section um, where she's trying to raise $500 to send more play-at-home packs to children. Um, so her her link is in there. If you click, if you click donate to a participant, you'll see Mia's name in there. Excellent. Um, so they've been really incredible. All right, that's that's a good plug, and I'll be happy to repeat the address. It's playathome.org, right, Melissa? Yes. All right. It well, is. Yes. Well, we're, we're not going to cut into your, your play at home uh, time, Mia. I know it's Saturday <laughs> and you have a date. So thanks very much for doing this with us here in Vancouver. Uh, continued uh, good luck to you. And Melissa, thanks for joining us as well. Thank you. Thank you for having us. It's our pleasure entirely. And that address again is playathome.org. 50 years ago on April 22nd, 1970, millions of people took to the streets and cities and towns across North America and the world, giving voice to an emerging consciousness of humanity's impact on Earth. And this week, 50 years later, our next guest wrote a piece in the conversation entitled Earth Day at 50, a look to the past offers hope for the planet's future. Our next guest is Philippe Tortel, a professor and head of the Department of Earth, Ocean, and Atmospheric Sciences at our own UBC. Professor Tortel, Philippe, good morning. Good morning. So were you uh, encouraged by the uh, sense of awareness of the 50th anniversary this week of Earth Day, Philippe, or did it just seem to pass by as another Wednesday? Yeah, you know, to be honest, it, it did seem to just pass by, but I think I think it's quite understandable as to why that was. There's obviously a lot of other things on people's mind at the moment. Sure. There, there was a little bit of coverage, but I think under different circumstances, the reception would have been a little different. So the, the piece, nonetheless, that you wrote, uh, I'm, I'm simply going off the title. I've read it, of course, but the, the title says, A Look to the Past offers hope for the future. Where do you see that glimmer of hope coming from referencing the past 50 years, Philip? 
Well, one of the things I did was to look back, say, 25 years from 1970 and 25 years from 2020. And there are differences, of course, but okay. there are some interesting similarities. So wind the clock back 25 years in 1970 and you get to the year 1945. You do the same thing in 2020 and you get to the year 1995. And the period from 1945 to 1970 and 1995 to 2020 were both periods of very profound economic shifts, technological development, geopolitical upheaval, and they both marked periods of rapid expansion of, of economies and, and various industries. In 1995, it was with the development of the World Trade Organization, which was really the kickoff to globalization, and, and of course, that came hand-in-hand hand with the development of internet technologies and so on. Right. And in 1945, it was really about industry, chemical manufacturing, and so on. Both of those periods of development did a lot of good for the world's population. It, it developed uh, stimulated growth, and it brought a lot of people out of poverty. It, it created very useful goods and services that really improved the standards of living for, for many people around the world. At the same time, there were some unintended consequences, some dark clouds, if you will, of both of those periods of development. In, in, the, in the 50s and 60s, it was really around the widespread use of, of chemicals that we now know to be extremely harmful, things like DDT, for example, CFCs that destroyed the ozone hole. But that, uh, was, that, was, the, hole. that was the era, Philip, of better living through chemistry now, wasn't it? Exactly. And, and it brought great benefits to, to humanity. But by the time 1970 rolled around, we realized that they were real problems. Yeah. And the hope comes from the fact that in 1970, people were able to come together and say, well, this is great, but there are some real problems here. And they were able to mobilize significant changes that that created a better future. And again, in 2020, having now lived through 25 years of globalization with all of its wonderful benefits, we're also understanding that there are negative consequences like massive increases in, in the consumption of fossil fuels, uh, deterioration of, of Earth's systems as we're sort of globalizing agric agriculture, for example. And my sense is that in 2020, as in 1970, we may begin to now understand that for all these good things, there are negative negative sides as well. And as they did in 1970, the young people are once again leading the charge and calling our attention to the fact that, you know, maybe it's time for a, a bit of a, a pause or a reset. We need to think about a different sort of future, exactly as they did in 1970. Well, you know, it's been really interesting from everyone's perspective, and it doesn't matter where you stand on the future and your take on what it's going to look like. We have all received a powerful serving of evidence, rock-solid evidence, Philip, that over the past, say, four to six weeks, we have literally seen our planet become visible again. Cities that have been buried under layers and layers of pollution, uh, Water systems that have been full of junk are now uh, that have fish in them. You can see uh, almost the entire planet from space. Uh, there's a, a, most of the gunk is gone, and it's been a relatively short period of time. So this, I would think, I'm, I'm just interested in your take on, on on the outcome of all of this because we all know, each and every one of us knows, this is a game changer. This has changed everything. After we get through this pandemic, it's not going to be as it wants was, it's going to be the new normal. What's your take on that, Philip? Well, a couple of things. First, I would actually, uh, I agree that uh, we've certainly seen a, re 
a dramatic example of what happens when we take our foot off the gas pedal, so to speak. There's no doubt that our systems do have some resiliency and rebound. On the other hand, um, there's still a lot of plastic out there, for example. When we talk about the gunk, you know, there's trillions of tons of of plastic, which which ain't going away anytime soon. Mm -hmm. On the other hand, I think the future is going to depend very much on the lessons that we take. It's there's one possible pathway where we just go right back to, to business as usual, ramp up our economy in, in exactly the way that we did. And then we lose all of any gains that we've made. I think the future is only going to look different. If we, if we take the opportunity as we rebuild our economies, as we're going to, you know, there's a bifurcation. We could build it as we've done in the past, or we could say, now let's take all these billions and trillions of dollars of stimulus and put it into, say, renewable energies or different kind of uh, farming systems. So there is an opportunity. The question is, will we take that opportunity? Well, and it's a good question, too, because there are so many people just absolutely chomping at the bit, Philip, to just get back at it. You know, anything resembling what it used to be like, just get that energy flowing again, get the cash flowing again. Uh, there's going to be some resistance, I would think, just in the interest of getting getting the wheels turning period yeah of course i mean people want to get going people are in very very difficult straits and uh, there's no doubt that people want to go as as fast as normal And, and i'm sure that will happen but the question is what sort of plans are now being put in place to move forward beyond this disruption and don't forget 1945 was a the period of the second world war was a period of massive disruption Absolutely. in the world of course and and 1970s also through the 1970s the economy was very shaky there were all kinds of oil shocks and all kinds of geopolitical issues and and actually i think those sorts of times of economic uncertainty and disruption often have proved to be some of the best times to rejig an economy and to exploit some new opportunities when yep. things are going very very well and the economy is humming on all cylinders, it's quite difficult, it seems to me, to get that, that bullet train off the tracks. But when you slow down and you pause, that's where I, I think and I hope there are some opportunities for creative new ways to move forward. Interesting stuff. And, of course, you, you draw comparison to 1945, and it's very very valid This because we're hearing now people quite frequently, in fact, Philip, refer to the need for a new Marshall Plan. Oops, would that be mm-hmm. 1945 take two? Well, obviously, you know, when you start to look at it in any detail, the details are really very different. But it's just this notion of a society that's profoundly disruptive and, and loses a lot of confidence in, in its way of, of being. Those sort of societies are the ones where, you know, I think on the one hand, they're ripe to be exploited by, by tyrants. And we've seen some of that. But at the same time, they're also ripe for really interesting and creative opportunities. You know, just different, different ways to imagine how we go forward. And are you, uh, you express hope in the piece, that, the very interesting piece you wrote in the conversation. Are you uh, reasonably optimistic that uh, there will be some progress uh, as part of some changes? Because as I say, it's not going to be the same as it was again, ever. So some of the changes, you sound a little hopeful for the, the positive nature that they could take. Yeah, I I always have to be a little bit hopeful. I'm not a a total uh, dreamer, uh, but I I think once you lose optimism and hope, then it's hard to get out of bed in the morning. So I I always cling to some optimism and hope. I know there's a lot of people, and I know there's a lot of people that really care, and it's just about shifting the needle a little bit and and seeing some real leadership, I guess, that says this is a new way forward. And, And you know what? We can do this. It's going to be painful and difficult, but we there is there is a different way forward if 
we just have the will. And, and clearly the coronavirus has shown us that when we face existential threats, we can, we can change. Now, the way that we did it to total sort of shutdown of the economy, that's not a good model <laughs> for how we're going to go forward. That's true. But clearly... We have the wherewithal to make massive changes when we feel it's in our absolute interest. Interesting stuff. The article, friends, is in the or is at theconversation.com. The author is Philip Tortell, who is a professor and head of the Department of Earth, Ocean, and Atmospheric Sciences at UBC. Professor Tortell, Philip, interesting conversation, sir. Thank you very much for it this morning. Hi, it's Shauna, and I might be a bad parent because my kids think french fries are vegetables. Hey, it's Ryan, and I might be a bad parent because I went out for wings when my wife was in the hospital after giving birth. Johnny here. I might be a bad parent because in my house, the tooth fairy gives pocket change. But we're not alone. Len emailed us and said his six-year-old daughter's Tarzan moment going from love seat to lazy boy by curtains made him more proud than any dance <laughs> recital. And Andy left his two-year-old at the rink. All right, guys, I'm sure we're not alone, like Andy's kid. For stories and confessions like this, make sure you check out our podcast. It's called Bad Parents, and it's available wherever you get your podcasts. I left a glove at the rink.